Hello, everybody, and welcome to the newest episode of Circuit 42. I am here, I am here with comic book writer extraordinaire and professional awesome person, Ed Brisson. See? Hey, how's it going? So, Ed, for those of you who don't know, those five people who aren't reading New Mutants, they aren't reading Avengers of the Wasteland, they're not reading uh, your work, your recent work on Ghost Rider, and of course, Murder Book and The Violent, for those five people out there who don't know, who are you and what do you do? Uh, well, I write, I write all those books you talk about. Uh, I'm, um, I'm a writer who, uh, I guess I, I first got my break as a writer with Image back in 2012 with a book called Comeback, uh, with, uh, Michael Walsh, um, who's a, a good friend of mine, um, who we, uh, yeah, we just, uh, we met in 2010 and started pitching books together. Got it, uh, got our first book through at, Mar- uh, sorry, Image at, um, uh, in 2012 with Comeback. I uh, went on to do uh, five different books at Image. I've done a bunch of stuff over at uh, Boom. Uh, did a little bit of, at Dark Horse. Uh, had a series at Through Oni. And done a little bit of work with DC. But these days I primarily, uh, exclusively, I guess, work with um, Marvel. So I've done uh, <clears throat> with Marvel, Bullseye, uh, Iron Fist, uh, Cable, uh, New Mutants, X-Force. Um, blanking out. <laughs> A lot. I've done a lot of stuff over there. Uh, Old Man Logan for a long time, and Dead Man Logan as well. I I wanted one of the big things I want to talk about actually was um, specifically Old Man Logan because I know um, mm-hmm. you know as everybody knows, Mark Miller created the original Old Man Logan storyline, and then Jeff Lemire brought that um, brought that back during um, I think it was right after right around the time of Secret Wars. Now a lot now as a, now as a writer. You know, you often you often find yourself in your in your own sandbox for like we've said for books like for books like self published books like murder book, violent, but for something like this, you are really coming into that established sandbox. What is that like as a writer, um, basically being thrown into that world that has been created and just having that ability to expand on it? Uh, it was pretty intimidating to be honest. Uh, I was still when I got Old Man Logan, still pretty new at Marvel, and you know the book had. You know, the character had had quite a pedigree of writers on it already. You know, with the original Mark Miller series, uh, Brian Michael Bendis did a five-issue during Secret Wars that sort of brought uh, Logan over to the 616, and then Jeff Lemire uh, sort of took the baton from there and did 24 issues, I believe. Uh, and then I came on. Uh, so it was a little bit daunting because it was a, uh, one of my – I think it was only my second ongoing series at Marvel – and uh, it's a character that I love uh, quite a bit, uh, Wolverine, and uh, I really like this iteration of his, of him as well, this sort of cranky, uh, grumpy old man, uh, Wolverine. Uh, so, yeah, it was daunting, but I think, you know, growing up, being a huge Wolverine fan and uh, already sort of having uh, a lot of stories that I wanted to tell, you know, I, I think I, you know, there was, there was a little bit of, um, uh, I don't know if I want to say nerves, but there was, I, I was, I was scared as hell, actually taking over the book and, and, and doing my first few stories. But once I got into it, you know, and, and got into the, uh, the character, I, um, there, there was a lot of stuff I wanted to ex- explore with him involving, uh, you know, his own guilt and, and, uh, his, uh, towards his loss of family and having sort of, um, sheathed his claws years ago, uh, and, and becoming a pacifist, which, uh, you know, Logan's a guy who can't win. You know, he fights people die. He stops fighting people die. And <clears throat> I just really wanted to play around a lot. Um, 
and examine sort of his his own guilt over that and how that uh you know how that pushed him through the stories we're doing how that uh changes relationships with other people and um yeah i don't know i don't <laughs> i went off on a tangent there but uh that was sort of my my goal when i when i came in was really just to to try and do some you know kick-ass logan stories but really just all seeped in this in this fear of letting people down and and losing people so I got to ask you as a creator, you know, with um with Old Man Logan, the character became just instantly popular. Like it wasn't like mm-hmm. you'll have some books where they'll introduce it and it will kind of take time to pick up. But um with Old Man Logan, a lot of people were like, oh, this can be a self-contained series. And then all of a sudden we had this ongoing series. Now, a lot of people, you know, they think about Old Man Logan, they think about Wolf, about Logan himself, Wolverine, and they kind of they kind of look at them as one and the same, but they're really not. Now in terms of characters, in terms of experiences, if you were to, um, if you were to write a Wolverine series in the 616 universe, like, how would you approach that? And how would you approach that differently than you would Old Man Logan? Hmm. You know, that's a, that's a good question. I'm not even sure I have a ready made answer for it, uh, because I haven't really considered it, but, um, yeah, I don't know. It's, uh, it's a tough one because I think, you know, like, um, a lot of the, the energy in the original man Logan ties back to him having lost his family. And while, while Wolverine has, has certainly lost people over, uh, the, the, you know, in his publication history, it's never been, I think, people that close to him, which I, I, I don't know if that's a hundred percent fair. You know, he's had people very close to him lost, but yeah, I, I think I would just have to sit down with it for a while and, and, uh, Sort of marinate in it, marinate in it a little bit, and and just see see where I felt uh, I, I needed to take them. And but yeah, the, at the at the moment I don't know because you know I don't want to do stuff we've already seen. You know I don't think we need to see um, him revisiting old pa- old uh, foes and such. I think especially right now with uh, with with everything going in Kokoa, uh, I think. Uh, ben Percy has, has sort of put him already in an in, in interesting place. Um, and yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I honestly, I don't know how to answer that, to be honest. Uh, it's one of those things I'd have to sit for a while and consider. I'm a, I'm one of those people who's a very, uh, uh, slow with my process. So I have to usually sit with things for a while and, and try and figure out where I'm going to go. Uh, I'm rarely ready with a ready, uh, rarely ready with an answer for where I would want to take a particular character. I think with Percy, I think he's got a really good balance of bringing in those new elements of Krakoa, of the Don of X, while tying in the the class, the nostalgic characters, you know, tying in Omega Red, Supertooth. And that's a really hard balance because you kind of want to fall back onto those characters that you remember when you were younger, but you have to realize, wait, we have to move the story forward. And I think that's really the balance for, any, for almost anyone working in comics is you have these characters that you love that you grew up on. And you have, there's always that, there's always that risk of just falling so in love with what you remember that you don't move forward with those stories. And I want to ask you about that because, um, we talked about this before the interview. We talked about New Mutants, but we specifically talked about the fact that there are a lot of characters from the uh, Generation X team in that book. Um, for anyone mm-hmm. who doesn't remember Generation X by, from Scott Lobdell and Chris Pachalo back in the, ni- back in the, um, let's say mid, mid 90s, early 2000s. I gotta ask you about that. And being a fan of those characters, uh, what, was that something that you wanted to bring, in, that you wanted to bring in, bringing in the Generation X characters? 
Or is that something that was part of a broad, grander design? Uh, I think initially when I was offered the book, I think uh, Hickman's, um, if I remember correctly, it's been a while, I think his his note was like, don't feel obligated to stick to the core uh, original New Mutants team. Uh, one of the things I'd always felt about the New Mutants is that it's kind of weird. You know, they've been around for 38 years now. Uh, so calling them New Mutants is kind of weird. Um, I grew up with them. And, you know, the thing that was exciting to me about them when uh, I was younger is that they always seemed to be they were going to be the next generation of, of, of the X-Men, right? Yeah. And, uh, they were sort of, uh, if I, if I remember correctly, and it's been a little while, but from what I recall, they were introduced when the X-Men it was the during X-Men the, was gone uh, for a period. Yeah, I think it was during the Brood Saga. Yeah, because at that point, right. Professor so they were, Xavier they were was missing. part of the Brood. Xavier was taken over by the Brood. Right. So the, yeah, they were missing for a bit, and that's why they were sort of brought in as, as like almost replacement X-Men. And, uh, for me, like, I liked that. I thought it was always exciting that they could potentially be the next X-Men. I, and, you know, here I am very young at the time when it came out, but, uh, thinking that, you know, I'm, I'm on the ground floor for the, for the next thing. Uh, because when they came out, it was only really, I think, what, like seven years after this new X-Men team had debuted. Uh, so it seemed very much possible that, you know, they could be, but, um, obviously they've been around now for 38 years and, I think we've seen like Generation X, we've seen the new uh, X-Men, but we haven't really seen um, folks graduate, I guess. Like they're kind of like stunted in grade 12, if that makes sense. You know, uh, they never they never really get to have the graduation ceremony and move on. And uh, so I feel like, you know, it's it's nearly impossible to give them that. But if we can give them something, I think is like rather than necessarily having these clearly delineated sort of generations, which I, I 100% understand everyone has their own sort of when they came aboard. If they came aboard Gen- Generation X, they're giant Generation X fans. The New Mutants fans, same thing. You know, the new X-Men, same. You know, that, that Mar- Morrison era X-Men, uh, you have the same. But I, I like the idea of sort of mixing them up a little bit and having all these people who are, you know, supposed to be the next generation of x-men sort of uh trading off on a team together and working together so you know while we were going to keep and we did keep uh, primarily uh, members from the original mutants we wanted to bring in other uh other people there so that's why we have like uh mondo on the team uh mondo there was just you know some really interesting way that he can interact with with krakoa i thought uh and chambers just a character i think is a lot of fun and of course bringing glob in um, and with armor, I wanted to continue something that I had sort of been, um, uh, doing for about a year before, uh, Matt Rosenberg, Kelly Thompson, and I co-wrote an X-Men run that was 10 issues, 10 issues long. Um, and one of the things that we were trying to do there is, uh, uh, push armor forward more as like a, a, a potential leader, someone who could sort of at some point have her own, you know, X-Men squad. Um, and while she's not necessarily in a in, in a leader capacity in New Mutants, I wanted to sort of at least push her in that direction and test her a little bit to to show that she's leader, leadership material and uh, that this is something that she's potentially uh, cut out for. I gotta say, so I that really was like, can we? Sorry, I, sorry. No, go ahead. 
I was going to say, I really like what you what they've done with Armor, because I remember when she was the first introduced in Astonishing X-Men, and it was a very small supporting role, but even then they established that she's kind of a brawler. And they never, and she, but she has this intel, she has this intelligence for her that kind of balances the character really, really well. And it's something that not a lot of writers tended to work as much with. Like, she would become that background character. And that's something I'm really liking about New Mutants. That, like you said, you're bringing her more to the forefront, more of that leadership role. And holy crap, I really want to talk about the, I really want to talk about the ending of issue 10, but I feel like there's a lot of people who may not have read it yet. Uh, spoilers. So. All right. Holy, so holy shit. Um, I know it's comics, so we don't know if the character is dead or not, but, um, that ending of issue number 10 with armor. I, right, okay, that's, uh, hang on one second. <clears throat> I know this sounds terrible, but it's, it's, uh, for me, I, I, I write these things so far in advance, so I'm just trying to remember where we end at 10. Is that where she's passed out and her parent, her, her mom and brother are there? Yeah, see, I didn't interpret it that way. Because, um, the fact yeah. that, her because their characters are dead, so I'm like, holy crap, did Armor die? Now I know you can't really say anything because publisher, but um, but I've got to say I'm really liking that the way that's set up because I'm like I've I was not expecting that at all, and I'm hyped for the next issue. Well, good, glad to hear. It. Yeah, I uh, it's uh again like you know I was re- trying to um, <clears throat> uh, make you know Armor an important part of this this story here, so you can you know. But she's the one who who's able to bring them through this sort of nightmare sphere uh, that they're they're wrapped in, up in. But yeah, uh, you know, obviously you want to let uh, you want to uh, you want to leave people on a nice cliffhanger, and uh, it's one that I was actually quite happy with. I'm just looking at the PDF right now, so I can remind myself. But yeah, this is a fun one. This is another one where uh, I was just just quickly gonna say this is another one where like one of the things I want to do with uh, one of the, to do with the new mutants coming in is that the, uh, the team isn't really like, you know, when I talked about swapping out characters and using characters from Gen X or, or, or new mutants or, or, uh, new X-Men or whatever. Um, it's not willy nilly that I want to do it either. Like it's sort of like mission dependent. So like, I'm looking at this one and uh, like we have wild side, you know, uh, from the MLF in so here cool. as well, which uh, that was kind of my, he's era. a, he's a character that's, yeah, but he's so like for me, he's a ton of fun, right? Like uh, the whole MLF thing, forearm and and him and and all of them, they're just so much fun. Uh, but they rarely get um, much stage time, and so that was another thing. We're all living on Kakoa, right? We're all friends, you know. Theoretically, the the good guys and bad guys are all friends and helping one another out. So this is one of those things I really wanted to. So sort of lean, lean into that a bit with uh, with Wildside and have this you know, this guy who's kind of a dink uh, helping out the new mutants here and uh, and giving him a chance to shine and giving him a chance to you know try and be a hero. Uh, so yeah, that's that's that something I really appreciated about Man, this book. Thanks. No, I'm just gonna say I'm looking through it and I just love the art. Oh, it's really nice. Uh, like, it's so pretty. I know Flaviano is just killing it. No, it's great. It's like, I, I don't disagree with you. There's just, you know, like I wanted to do this weird nightmare stuff and I hit Flaviano up beforehand to talk about it. And I knew like he, he's, he's a really good artist for handling sort of the bizarre. And I knew he could really hit it out of the park, but I think I didn't know, uh, just how great it was going to be when he started drawing it. Uh, but these, like when they're floating through that sort of nightmare sphere, I love those pages. I think to really have, to really hit that classic kind of New Mutants feel, 
you kind of have to have that kind of twisted artwork. You have, you have that, like that twisted beauty because you look at what Bill Sienkiewicz did on his run and, um, mm. and just like so many other artists that followed. And while we had Bob McCloud, who of course co-created New Mutants with Chris Claremont, people remember Sienkiewicz. That's the, that's what people, a lot of people in our minds, what we look to. Um, and then you, um, in many ways, it feel, for me personally, it feels like you have to have that slightly askew, slightly darker style to the book to really make it a part of them, a part of the movies in that way. Sure, yeah, I think that there's always been, you know, a bit of, a bit more horror element to um, <clears throat> to New Mutants um, in the past than maybe, you know, it's certainly X Men has had it from time to time, but it's it seems to be such a more prevalent thing uh, popping up in New Mutants. Yeah, for me. Um, even though it does not get, even though her run does not get as much press as as much claim as Claremont's, I've always really liked Louise Simonson's run, and really when she gets into Inferno, you really saw that book at its at its absolute darkest in terms of the artwork and what you could do with it, and it was just really interesting stuff that not a lot of people talk, not enough people talk about. Everyone talks about the the this year's sort of Liefeld run, which while it's entertaining, um, mm-hmm. and the uh, it's like it's not what that book was. And for me, I think if I, I'm glad to see this approach coming closer to the darker, more character-focused work, and that's something I really appreciate about this book. Thanks. But um, one thing I wanted to ask you about was the fact that you're bringing in some characters that haven't gotten a lot of love. That's I know somebody I noticed with this book, and the big one for me is um, Beak and Angel Salvador from um, Grant Morrison's mm-hmm. new X-Men run. And you, you got me, man. You, you, my, me and my um coast who unfortunately couldn't make it that was the story of all the issues that storyline with him in the farm with him in the farmhouse that was the one that really got me and i want to talk about that one because okay um with you and with you and hickman i mean that really took the book and kind of because we had the first couple issues but that's the one that really established the identity and what was your like what was your, what was your guys approach to it because it was so in a way, it felt like it was set up, but it was so different for those first couple issues that came before. Yeah, well, what had happened is um, <clears throat> it was a weird scheduling thing and trading off between Hickman and I. So he and I co-wrote the first issue, uh, and then he did issue two, then I did issue three. So all the stuff that takes place with Beak and, and Angel at the at the farm was where I was writing. So he and I were trading off. It was uh, just, like, to be honest, just a schedule issue. Um which is why we were trading back and forth and why, you know, issue three maybe seems so different from issue two uh, involving that B squad. But yeah, the process there is I just, you know, uh, I think that uh, sort of my initial um, pitch or my, my initial concept when I was talking to um, the ex editors and Hickman and stuff is that I wanted to use the, uh, the uh, new mutant sort of, uh, as a welcoming committee to to Krakoa in some way, and that they, you know, they're now living on Krakoa. Krakoa is a paradise. They love it. It's so great. And the thing that would make it better is that you know their friends are there, right? And Hickman was doing similar with um, uh, uh, Sunspot and uh, everyone going off into space to try and bring Cannonball back. Um, and so I thought, you know that it would make sense that the, the sort of B squad would be doing the same on, on earth of doing similar. And so, you know, that, that was the thing with beak. It's just, you know, uh, you know, I have armor leading the team and she's sort of looking out, trying to figure out why 
particular mutants haven't returned because they've all they all would have gotten the message, you know, that they're welcoming Kokoa. Uh, and you know, as we've seen in the book, thousands of mutants or however many mutants are making their ways through the gates and coming back home. Uh, so I wanted them to be, sort of be seeking out the the ones that weren't for some reason and just you know to almost like preach the good word of Krakoa uh, to them to make sure that they knew uh, what was waiting for them and uh, so yeah and obviously with um, <clears throat> outside of Krakoa I think uh, it's not surprising that a lot of uh, people who are not maybe crazy about mutants are going to um, eye everything they're doing with suspicion and and sort of go after the, the, the mutants in their own community. And uh, so, yeah, I just, I don't know. It was just so I wanted to bring Beacon back into it uh, and, and Angel and, and their children. And, um, you know, I thought it, it would be interesting if, if he was, if Beak wasn't coming because he, he you know, he was trying to help. He, you know, was on his farm. His dad was sick and he's there trying to help to make sure that, uh, you know, he's, he's doing good. He's, he's, uh, He's got a lot of heart, and uh, yeah, it just uh, and it just sort of spun out in that story, and uh, you know, I think it was a, just a good way to show sort of what the new mutants were about, and to uh, to show what maybe some of the complications would be for some of the mutants coming back to Krakoa. So, with that, I gotta ask, and one of the things I really do appreciate about the um, the storyline with the X Files right now, with uh, Don of X, with the story behind Krakoa, is that you look at it. And you look at the way some of the characters are acting, and you look at some of the things that characters like Apocalypse have done, and it almost makes you uncomfortable. Like you're like, okay, I, I, it's like you appreciate the fact that they are finally have some semblance of peace, even though we see the flaws in that, unfortunately, because of humans just being humans and their prejudices. But I love it because you also see, uh, you also have this consistent undertone of where you, even you're like, as a reader, is everything right? Is something going on? Is there something that we don't know about? And that's something I love consistently throughout all the titles. Is that is the fact that none of this is being approached in a black and white way? Yeah, I think you know uh, Hickman's plan coming in is he really wanted to sort of shake things up, and uh, you know we've had what like you know forty fifty years of, of good uh, X Men stories, you know just forty five years I guess with the since Giant Size X Men and you know. Yeah, it was 1974, right? Yeah. Jesus, I think, was it 74 or 75? Uh, whatever, whatever. <laughs> too long ago. Oh my god. Um, so good though. But, uh, yeah, I think like, 75. I, uh, a problem. What's that? 75. 75, okay. I think one of the things he, he felt was a problem, and I don't think he's wrong, is that, you know, uh, a lot of the X-Men books for the last couple decades have had this, a problem of sort of looking backward rather than looking forward, like uh, re-examining past stories and going back uh, to the well repeatedly rather than sort of pushing themselves forward. And uh, I think what, you know, what he proposed is something that does make a lot of sense. If you're going to have a, a mutant society where, you know, you sort of have to start from the ground up and you have to sort of uh, welcome everyone to it. And, you know, that definitely comes with a, a lot of complications because you have uh, uh, people with a lot of blood on their hands. But I, I do think it, it was, uh, it, it just felt like the shot on the, in the arm that the, that the, the titles needed. I think in many ways it kind of, not that there's not that the, the stories or the themes are similar, but what you said about, you know, not relying on the past and actually creating these 
new ideas, these new um, these new changes in the universe. Um, it kind of reminds me in a way of my thoughts on the story of Messiah Complex, which is still one of my favorite X Men stories. I don't think it's enough gets enough love now. It gets enough enough love compared to a lot of the books that came prior to it. And um, that's part of something I like about both books is that they're like, yes, we have that past, but there are so many ideas that can be that we can do that haven't been done. And that's something that both 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 events, in my opinion, have in common. I think it's part of the reason I appreciate them so much is because yeah, there's there's so much new material. We don't have to just sit on the past, like respect it, touch on it, but don't make it the focus of your story. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I'm a I'm a giant X Men nerd, so for me, like, so, sorry, yeah. Um, so I got, something I've got to ask about because of course you worked on uh, you worked on X Force, you worked on Old Man Logan. And with mm-hmm. that, you worked on a lot of books, a lot of a number of mutant titles prior to House of X, Power of X, and Dawn of X. Now, in many ways, like the previous, a lot of these previous titles were very much self-contained, and while there were references to the other X titles, they were very much in their own, their own story. Now, with the Dawn of X titles, of course, yeah, you know, they do have their own individual stories, but there clearly is a very strong uh, drive in a particular direction for all these stories as we come in. As we come into these new events, we come to these new ideas. As a writer, what is how is your how does your approach change, or does it change going from a book that's very much a self-contained series to something that is part of a like an overall more editorially driven uh, storyline like this? I you know it changes in that like uh, if I'm doing something like you know when I did my my run on X Force, uh, which was sort of X-Force is just off on their own doing this thing. Uh, my X-Force run picks up from uh, a bunch of threads that I'd sort of laid out in um, in uh, Extermination, which I, I'd done just prior to, uh, to X-Force. But uh, yeah, it's it's like what you said. What, like, I'm largely, I, I've sort of built these rules um, uh, within the stories that I want to tell. I, I, I'm pushing forward with them. And because the team is off on their own doing their own thing, I don't really, the one I was doing X Force didn't really have to consider, for the most part, sort of where everybody was at, you know, in in, in X Men stuff, right? Like, uh, because the the first, I don't know, five issues all took place uh, in in um, I am blanking in the country, but uh, it'll it all takes place in in um, Transia, uh, so a different country. And then, uh, you know, the, the latter half all takes place in the, in the future. So we're, we're, we're cut off, right? You know, from, from everything else. So I can sort of just sit down with the artist, uh, and editor and just kind of rock and roll, you know, just do what we, whatever we want to. Um, you know, obviously we, there's, uh, continuity considerations, um, which, uh, <laughs> you know, on, on X-Force was, you know, trying to sort of decipher sometimes what the Ascani clan uh, really stands for and what they're all about is not always the simplest. But um I with, think anything with, with Rakoa, them is simple at all. <laughs> no, it I I read everything about the Ascani clan. I have notes that make me look like a serial killer. Um <laughs> it's just like just uh, was to, it Charlie Day with his conspiracy chart. Yeah, exactly I, I felt like that. Uh it's uh, just trying to sort it all out, you know, and there just bits there and I and I I, w- I like to think I did a good job with, you know, sort of navigating it and 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 hopefully doing sort of the um uh proper 
service to it, you know, that uh, that anyone who's uh, thinks about the Scandian scan, you know, Rachel Summers fans, you know, obviously yeah. are, are, that's a thing that they're they're following pretty closely. But, um, <clears throat> you know, there was an effort, but I was I was like I was kind of like an island out on my own doing this. Uh, with you know me and the editor and and, and the artists, uh, the two artists over the course of the book, you know, like the, we were off doing our thing. Whereas like um, Krakoa and the Dawn of X stuff, it's like your uh, this is like a, a shitty analogy, uh, but you know you're like a, you're like a, a, a one puzzle piece in the larger thing, right? Like er- everything has to sort of work together in, in order for everything to make sense. Yeah. So there's definitely some some hard rules on things you can and cannot do um, that, you know, were not uh, barriers that I had before. And that's not to say that the barriers are a bad thing. I don't think that it's a, uh, it's the detriment. I think if anything, it's to the, the benefit of the stories that we're telling. And so really it's just like with the Krakoa stuff, with the Donna X stuff, it's, it's, you're just having to be uh, that much more of a team player and that much more, uh, aware of what everyone's doing at that uh, particular moment. And so, you know, the, the Don X people are reading each other's scripts as they're going along and keeping, uh, there's a, there's an X-Men slot where everyone's keeping track on what everyone else is doing. You have to, so really. It's, it, it, in that way, it's a lot different. Yeah. And again, like, you know, like, uh, the, I think, like I said, I think the good thing is that uh, uh, Don X, you know, is really looking forward and, and sort of pushing this new, uh, era. It was always like from day one. It was always talked about it being this, this sort of new era of X Men, which I think it, it really has become. Uh, but you know, when X Force, <clears throat> X Force, I got to sort of delve back into some of the '90s crap. The you know, not crap. That's <laughs> no mean crap. I mean like the '90s stuff. Okay, the, the 90s let's, stories let's be honest. There's a lot of bad in like. the '90s. We we there's, love it. There's a ton of trash in the '90s. Oh yeah, there's some good stuff but that I think, floats up, but there's a lot of trash too. But we still love that. I think, sure. And I think the thing about the 90s is uh, there were so many good um, ideas as well sort of presented and, and pushed and, and so many chances taken. Uh, so, you know, like you know, with X-Force, you know, like I said already, like I had the playing around with this scanning clan and, and trying to uh, fill in chunks of Cable's history, like the whole, you know, whether, whether or not you hate or love uh, Kid Cable, um, the thing I really like about that character is we've had, you know, grizzled veteran cable for years. Um, but there's this whole like period of at least a decade. I would want to say about 20 years of cable sort of history or past that, that we didn't really know a whole lot about. So the cool thing like that, that I really was enjoying about X-Force is trying to like fill it in a little bit. You know, I didn't fill in a ton, but you know, we got to do a little bit of that sort of stuff. Like what happened to him post uh, a scanny son and uh, and adventures of um, uh, Cyclops and and Jean. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, and that, but you know that still is in a lot of ways looking backward, uh, looking at at the past to inform stories, which I, I don't think is a bad thing. But uh, uh, you know, for me that was a lot of fun fun to be able to do. But now we're like like a steam engine full full tilt ahead to uh, the future. I, I will say as part of as just a fan ta- a little fan tangent, uh, Cyclo- the Veterans Cyclops of Phoenix is still, in my opinion, still one of the best X titles. And like we said, like a lot of the '90s gets that reputation, gets that stereotype of like the big, just loud, noisy garbage. But 
Like there are really good stories, and I think that one in particular, uh, as and as someone in your position who's bringing back the Iskani storylines, bringing back those characters through X Force, they did set up a lot of interesting things. And while let's be honest, things got convoluted as things went on, as things tend to do, that original storyline did really did establish that universe so well to the point where, for me personally, it did feel like a different world. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, hey, and this thing, you know, it's it's still I think one that. Uh... I don't think at any point anyone's going back to do any stuff in that era, but you know, if it ever happens, I think there's still a lot of really interesting stuff that can be done with that era. And like, say what you will about Lobdell, because I've always been, I've always, even though the more I know about Lobdell personally, the more it makes me sad. But um, in terms of his um, writing, while there are books that I've definitely had issues with, like seemingly whenever he got into a big event book. Those standalone stories, like the bottle stories that he would write and eventually the Cyclops of Phoenix, those standalone stories were definitely his strength, in my opinion. And, like, seeing any time I could see that universe brought back does make me happy, especially with someone like you who clearly has that love for it and is able to actually tell a story that makes sense. Which, with the Oscani stories, that's not something that always happens. <laughs> it's tough, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, I wanted to talk about I wanted to talk about Avengers of the Wastelands because we mentioned uh, Old Man Logan. This series ties tied directly into that. Uh, that was an interesting one because I was so I did Dead Man Logan uh, with Mike Henderson uh, and, and um, Nolan Woodard for a year. So we did twelve issues of Dead Man Logan and the Wasteland or Avengers of the Wasteland, which originally mm-hmm. I, I was calling Wasteland Avengers when I was pitching it. Um, wasn't anything that was really on the radar uh, at any point. But um, when I was writing Dead Man Logan, which uh, I I remember, I finished it like very, very early. I finished writing it like, I don't know, I want to say almost a year before the last issue came out. It was just one of those things that I kind of got into the, uh, just got into it and, and, and couldn't stop writing. Um but when I got to the the uh, scene where Danny Cage, uh, she gets shot, and uh, this is a spoiler for those who haven't read Dead Man Logan, I guess. Uh, but she gets shot, and we think that she's she's dead, and she falls on um, Thor's hammer in Hammer Falls, uh, Nevada. And you know, when she falls on it, the hammer falls over, and we realize you know, oh, she's she's worthy. Uh, that when I wrote that moment. Uh, I realized afterwards, like we we'd had Ant Man in the book already, uh, Dwayne, who was who who's got like kind of the funnest uh, arc or the most interesting because he was the little kid in Mark Miller's Old Man Logan, right? He's the one with yeah. the Ant Man helmet on the bridge, and then I believe uh, he appears again in Old Man Hawkeye. Uh, Ethan had put him in there as uh, Turks nephew and he, he's at Turk's bar uh, and he's a little bit older I think maybe he's 10 or 11 there and then I'd put him in Dead Man Logan because he was hanging out at um, uh, oh my god I'm blanking on his name this is terrible um, but he's hanging he's in Dead Man Logan uh, and I was talking to my editor and I was like well we've got like a we've got the Hulk uh, we've got Ant-Man and now we've got a Thor I'm like it's kind of interesting that we have you know, we're sixty percent of the way to an to Avengers. Avengers team. Yep. Yeah, I'm like, what if we, what if we did, um, 
like in Avengers of the Wasteland. And what I really want to do with that is like, I think that like old man Logan and, um, dead man Logan, even like the original old man Logan series and dead man Logan, which is sort of meant to be a cap to that original series. Um, while there may be like a little bits of hope in there here and there, it's mostly like a hopeless society. And so I thought it would be really interesting to take the wasteland and try and build a story that uh, has some hope to it. And, and I think, you know, the Avengers in the Marvel universe uh, represent, you know, hope more than, more than any other team. And uh, I, th- I just felt like it would be, it'd be an interesting thing to do something in a similar environment uh, with the window dressings almost very similar, but like that it's the, the thrust of it is different. Um, and, you know, to, to my delight and surprise, they are cool with me doing that. And, uh, they let us do this five issues. And, you know, I'm ha- I'm happy with how they came out. Um, uh, I think that it, it leaves, uh, that world in, in kind of an interesting place. I don't know if they're going to go back there anytime soon or what the deal is, but, you know, I think it leaves it in a, in a place of hope and where maybe, maybe they're going to rebuild and maybe there's going to be, you know, something, something better, uh, for these people in the future. The thing I, the thing I love about this and the thing I love about Old Man Logan, Dead Man Logan is that you took, they managed to, you got, um, you, Lemire, Bendis, everybody managed to take this, this series that, like, like I said, it's, you know, a lot of people just read and were like, oh, it's all fun and done. It's this particular world. And it's been, and in a way, it's, it really has been expanded. It's been made into its own universe. And where a lot of times that can feel forced, it doesn't. Like, it just feels very natural, which is really not easy to do in any kind of creative form. You know what I mean? Yeah, sure. Yeah. No, it's a, that sort of thing, you know, before we got on the air, you, you mentioned Mad Max Fury Road, which is like, you know, uh, I'm, I'm a giant film junkie and Same. like growing up uh, I was a huge uh I was one of those video store kids that would go down to the video store uh on Monday nights where you could rent you know five bucks uh for five films and I would rent 20 uh to watch over the course of the week um, I didn't also had insomnia when I was younger um which helped but uh you know I loved post-apoc films you know like just like nobody's business dude the best ones are the italian knockoff ones i love them oh my god 1990 the bronx warriors stuff like that dude yes i'm so sad that i think like shop factory if i remember they just put on the it's on the shop factory app right now okay nice i don't think we have that in canada i'll have to look it's it's um, it's awesome yeah i love all that sort of stuff so just having a chance to sort of get into that uh you know wastelands uh environments and and muck about you know it, it was just a ton of fun and like i um i just have a lot of love for those sort of stories so and really i think it's easy to get lost um in like the cool rusted cars and and the the weird uh you know like weird fucked up motorbike gangs and stuff and why is everyone yeah, like it's here? Weird. yeah it's it's so easy to get lost in that stuff but like i think if you can bring heart to it uh, you know, I think that sort of stuff really resonates. Yeah. So with that, I want—I actually want to talk about another book that you re- that you've been working on that was uh, Ghost Rider, and um, mm. like you and Aaron, you you and uh, Aaron, you and Aaron Cooter, and um, have just put have basically just brought out this character that I absolutely love, and Ghost Rider's just been one of those characters like 
there's so many characters from that from now we know of course he was created in the 70s but there's so many but he really came to terms in the 90s with um howard with howard, howard mackie and texuria and um he's probably one of those few characters who really held on to the 90s it's really actually kind of maintained that almost with a more of a cult following than anything what what is your approach to the character what is your particular approach to the character and um what are like the big runs that you kind of look at as like the like the best for that character i think so uh the howard mackie run from the 90s is what brought me into the character uh like i still remember walking in <clears throat> to my comic shop when i was probably 14 15 and seeing that you know that danny catch cover everyone knows that cover where it's just danny catch ghost rider standing with his motorcycle uh it's it's just such a simple but iconic image uh and it just pulled me in right away and uh so I, that whole 90s um, Howard Mackie Ghost Rider stuff is uh, with Mark Texiera and uh, Javier uh, Solteros. Yeah. Not, I can't remember his last name. Um, you know, and, and then obviously there were there were other artists um, writers as run went on, but the, the Howard Mackie stuff really resonated with me. I, I really loved all that stuff. Uh, it was just such a great looking book. Uh, again, like going back to being like this this movie junkie. Uh, you know, <clears throat> probably not surprising about it, like just big genre fans. So like I love, you know, post-apoc sci-fi sort of wasteland stuff. And, and horror was another big thing for me. Um, and so this is like tying together my two loves of, of horror and comic books. Um, but uh, yeah, that was it was just such an incredible run. I think, you know, introducing Danny and really expanding on the character and expanding on the mythos. Um Introducing a, a, like a, a largely new uh, rogues gallery for the character, um, and then like, like I had you know my my thought processes here. I just really wanted to push forward. Uh, we're doing you know in Ghost Rider we have both Danny Catch and Johnny Blaze, um, and I wanted to sort of push the mythology a bit forward. I, I wanted to play around with the whole idea that uh, that uh, Johnny is the king of hell, which is something that had been left in place since damnation uh, from 2018. Um, and also just really wanted to give catch, uh, his own, like I wanted to sort of give him his own identity. Uh, and I know like for a lot of people, he was a ghost rider and Johnny's a ghost rider, uh, for, for, for an older generation. And then, you know, if you talk to a hundred people, 50 are going to tell you they're, you know, for, for Johnny and 50 are going to tell you they're for Danny. Uh, with only those two options. There's a lot of Robbie fans out there as well. Um, but anyway, I digress. Um, I really wanted to push it in, in a different way. And I wanted to give Danny his own thing that was maybe not necessarily the Ghost Rider and sort of push him in his own different direction and see if we could get some sort of uh, uh, something exciting out of that. Either way, we can both agree that the that the, that the uh, Mackie run of Ghost Rider needs Omnibus, especially for the Texary artwork. Yeah, I and don't disagree yeah. at all. I think uh, it'd be great. Just so long as it's not one of those phone book ones that I can't actually read. See, like for me, I have found I have found ways to do that. Like I, I managed to read all of all of the Infinite Crisis omnibus, so that's like fourteen hundred pages. Yeah, yeah, I, I've seen those. Yeah, yeah. I think I think it may have actually driven me insane. It made me think. I, I mostly. A idea. <laughs> I mostly read in bed, so like. I, I feel like I would fall asleep and the omnibus would fall on my chest and, ca- and cave it in and I'd be dead. See, that's that's why my strategy is I put the book on the bed and then I turn around and read it that way. Okay. 
Because like all most of the books I read at night are the oversized Omnis, and I found that that's like the only way I can read them without, like you said, being crushed to death. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But um, well, off on that aside. All right. So um, so so with that, I wanted to touch on I wanted to touch on your book Violence because I know you had uh, you had done Violent back in 2015, 2016, and we and I know you're actually coming back to that book. I wanted to ask you mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you about that, especially with something that. You worked on that long ago. What's it like coming back to those characters? Uh, so that one was interesting in that, like, um, Adam and I had already always intended to do a bunch of violence um, books. And the plan with them is they're all, um, each story is five issues. Um, each story is largely self-contained. But each uh, story does have connective tissue to other volumes in, in, in the series. So, you know, I have a, a, a plan for five of these volumes, so 25 issues total. You know, sadly, we only got five issues out. Um, but uh, when the trade came out, it did quite well. So we're sort of in a position where hopefully we can do more. Uh, and we're just sort of looking at our options for how we can get it out. Uh, but like I, I was saying uh, uh, before we started, is that uh, I'm halfway through. Uh, right now, we're sort of uh, have a lot of downtime on my hands. And so I, I've been getting back to writing a bunch of creator own work, and and the violent was the first one I, I, I sort of hopped on, and um, so even though there is one character in the volume that I'm writing now who is in the first volume, uh, the first volume is set in 2015. Uh, this um, next volume is actually set in 1986, so it's that character 29 years earlier when he's a, a 13 year old kid. Um, and, uh, it's, uh, this new one. So it's, it's again, like the first one dealt with, uh, it was, you know, set in Vancouver. I really wanted to, um, highlight Vancouver as, as a place, uh, where, you know, we do have, you know, when I lived there, there were, there were a lot of problems. It's a, it's a great city, uh, but it's got a lot of problems and, and drug addiction is, is high among the list. Um, it has a absolutely insane, uh, uh, real estate market. That, um, you know, it sounds like, uh, you know, it's, it's a problem where like, you know, nobody can buy a house, which doesn't necessarily sound like a huge deal when, until you consider that because nobody could buy a house, uh, more people are renting. And because more people are renting, there's more demand for rentals. Uh, so now rentals are more expensive. Uh, so a place that, you know, might have cost, uh, you know, like a, say one bedroom that, you know, 12 years ago cost $700 a month maybe uh, to rent now costs $2,000 a month to rent, you know? And so it becomes a thing where like it's uh, it puts a lot of downward pressure on, on those in, in lower income brackets uh, and, you know, certainly the poor. And of course, uh, drug addiction is uh, obviously a problem across all uh, uh, classes, but there's definitely, you know, a, a, a a problem with poverty and, and uh, tightly tied to drug addiction in, in Vancouver. And so these are all sort of like the backdrop to the story I was doing in, in volume one. These are things I just wanted to sort of talk about and address. And, uh, you know, with the background of the story about a, a couple who may lose their, you know, a couple ex drug addicts who are now on the, on the straight and narrow who may lose their kid and are trying to sort of, um, fix the problem by just making it worse. They're essentially just throwing gasoline on a fire or, uh, you know, water on an oil fire, I guess. Uh, 
just making it worse. And um, anyway, so that, you know, it was a five issue thing. Very like it came out. I was so proud of the book, Adam and I uh, and Michael Garland, who, who's our colors. We we're all so super proud. But the sales just weren't quite there uh, for us to continue at the time. Uh, thankfully, you know, in the intervening years, you know, I've done a bunch of work for Marvel. Adam's done a bunch of work for Marvel and all the publishers. And um, we, during this downtime, obviously we've got time on our hands. Uh, so we decided to finally hop back on it. And so this second issue, or the second volume is about uh, Jesse, who's, uh, he play, he is the cop character in the first volume. Yeah. The one who's sort of investigating the, the two, um, uh, the husband and wife. And it's about him as a, as a 13 year old. Um, he and uh, a friend of his, um, decide to run away from home. Uh, for Jesse, he's just angry. His parents are getting divorced. Uh, he's just, you know, doing it for attention. His friend, she's doing it, uh, because she desperately needs to get away from sort of her, her home environment. Uh, it's, it's not a good environment. It's, it's very destructive. And, uh, <clears throat> she ends up, she steals money from her stepfather or her mom's boyfriend, uh, and ends up they run away and end up on the run from uh, a bunch of drug dealers over the stolen money. Uh, but it's, you know, it's, uh, it's set in Kelowna, which is about, uh, I guess about 250 miles east of Vancouver, but it's set in 1986, uh, because uh, Vancouver had Expo 86, uh, back then, uh, which was a big sort of event, uh, globally and, uh, is largely pointed to as the sort of, thing that kickstart kickstarted the housing crisis in Vancouver. Um, but you know, so there's still, you know, I'm, I'm not done complaining about that sort of stuff. So I'll be featured, but uh, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a nice five issue thing about these kids trying to, uh, trying to run away and trying to survive. And uh, yeah, it's a, you know, I finished last, the first issue a couple of weeks ago <clears throat> and uh, it just felt really good to get back to that, that sort of world and write that sort of stuff. I've, uh, felt invigorated in a way that I haven't for a little while. Um, that's not to say that I uh, haven't loved things that I've been running elsewhere. It's just getting back to the stuff that just uh, feels like it's uh, just in my DNA to do. It, uh, it's very more personal. Yeah, it's a 100% personal story. This actually story is very, very, very loosely based on uh, the time uh, a friend and myself ran away when we were about the same age. Uh, and both we ran away for very similar reasons. Uh, I, I was just mad at my parents and, and he was trying to uh, uh, escape from what eventually proved to be a, uh, a a deadly home situation. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's and that's that is that is really sad. But it's one of those things that like the fact that you're able to talk about it and the fact that you're able to use this, this series as an outlet, you know, for all that is just. It's awesome because that's, I think that's just one of those things that a lot of people, you know, you hear the idea of using something as an outlet to deal with things that you, to deal with things that you went through growing up. And that's really is in, in many ways, at least in my opinion, that's what this is. And it's a place something that could be appreciated. Yeah, absolutely. It's just, it's yeah. Me, me dealing with a lot of stuff that happened to me when I was younger, uh, in, in this arc, uh, anyway, but, uh, yeah, it's a, it, it's a, it's a pretty rough story, but it's, uh, it's something I'm in, you know, it's been really uh, uh, great to get back to. 
I will I will say one of the things I li- I like the idea of the story being set during different periods of time and then non-linear storytelling because um I grew up a big I grew up a big Stephen King fan particularly of uh the Dark Tower series and mm-hmm. I also really liked I've also I also really liked American Vampire by him and Scott Snyder and the thing I liked about both of those was that you you yes you could focus on this one setting this one story you could focus on the old west. But I like it because you see it from so many perspectives, and it really builds that universe by having those stories set during different times, uh, different characters, and even those same characters at earlier, later points of their life. And um, I I think it's really interesting because it seems like as readers, there's almost a split. Like there is a like there's the 50% who want that continuing linear story, and 50% who can appreciate a story that ties into different timelines and actually and builds a world that way. Um, in terms, in terms of that, what, what makes you appreciate what makes you appreciate that approach? I think well, with this story, it's it's um, I'm trying to sort of talk about um, um, a history of a thing. Like uh, part of the story is really talking about like how uh, as much as like the character, as much as I hate saying the city is a character, um, the city is a character. Uh, and, and part of these stories that I'm telling in the violence is, uh, not only about these sort of these, these dark, uh, uh, crime stories that, that are happening to these people, but also like how the city got to where it is. There's a long sort of history of how, how things became the way they are, how, how the situation there got so untenable. Um, and I think it almost, uh, demands, some historical context. And so that's, you know, why I'm popping back and forth. Um, but I'm, I'm also like, you know, the plan is to go a little bit, go back, but also, um, forward as well. So, you know, the, the hope is that if we can get to the fifth, uh, uh trade that, uh, uh, the first trade, uh, for anyone who read it, the, the, um, the couple, uh, who are trying to, to keep custody of their, their daughter, um, is the daughter is she's three um, uh, in the book, and uh, what I'm hoping to do is to um, the last the, the last volume will be that same daughter um, as a as a 15 year old. Um, so you know, like I said, Adam and I have been talking about these, and there's like five trades. These are not five trades that are going to come out back to back. The hope is to sort of stagger them all the time. So that by the time uh, um, the fifth one comes out, you know, time-wise, it makes sense with the books that she's she's now 15. Yeah. Uh, because one of the things I really want to look at is sort of um, uh, cycles of behavior and cycles of of uh, abuse and cycles of, of uh, violence and uh, uh, and how much uh, your own family can um, sort of define who you are. Uh, whether it's you know you falling in, in in step with your family or or pushing against, it's, there's still uh, there's still a defining force in your life, whether you're you're you know pro or anti. You know what I mean? Like um, whether you're fighting against them or just becoming them. And uh, and so I think that from to my mind, it, it, it's you know being able to bounce back and forth in time, give context, historical context for what happened in Vancouver. What happened to this cop? There's, you know, there's a lot of stuff that happens to him when he's 13 that's going to come back up later on. Again, it's just more cycles of, uh, of, um, 
of behavior. Uh, and I, I just think, you know, ending it with the person uh, who they were trying to save so desperately in the first being the one who's sort of in charge and in control of her own destiny uh, is uh, is just something that, that really um, I find incredibly interesting. Yeah, I co- I completely agree. I feel, I feel like I'm rambling. I apologize. No, it's it's not. It's not rambling, in at least in my opinion, because um, when you have that kind of passion for the storytelling, for the characters, that kind of very personal relatability, it really builds that universe and makes it more interesting. Because if you didn't have that kind of that kind of passion for it, it would show, and it shows both in the book and talking to you about the book, and that's something that sadly there are. There is all. There seems to be very much a divide of that approach where it comes to that personal approach, and you can always tell, and it always adds so much to the story, and that's why I appreciate hearing just how much this means to you, and just how much you've embraced that universe because of the things you've gone through, unfortunately, and because of, like you said, the Vancouver housing, the Vancouver housing crisis, and witnessing that firsthand. You know, but the fact that it adds so much depth to it just makes it makes it in a way at least for the storytelling that much better even if you're being able to take things that were were, that were and are very difficult and be able to create something great out of them not only to explain it and show it to others but to do so in a very strong uh, very story centric very story and very character centric way or i'm just rambling i don't know oh i agree with you i think that's great you're making me sound smart (laughs) the um the other the other big book you've got you had was Murder Book, which I know had previously been collected through Dark Horse, and this was one that you and I talked about too that you were actually coming going to be coming back and creating new material for it. So let's talk about uh, yeah, that. sure. Uh, so Murder Book was a uh, Murder Book was an interesting thing for me that it was a uh, uh, just very quickly and um, uh, I'll give you the quick and dirty uh, Ed Brisson history. Um, I originally, when I broke in, or when I uh, started uh, down this path to, to get into comics, I originally wanted to be a comic book artist. I didn't want to be a writer. And um, I went to fine arts to learn how to, you know, I, I was already drawing in high school and stuff, but I, you know, went to fine arts to try and fine tune my skills. And um, in like the early 90s, I started uh, getting serious about wanting to draw comics. And so I, um, I uh, started sort of reaching out to, to find. Uh, uh, writers locally uh, with, with no luck um, I, I found two writers and they were uh, weirdly like not good writers but also like just very arrogant as well um, and, I, and I knew that I could write just as well as they could so I, I, I sort of just started writing stuff out of necessity I needed something to draw and uh, so I did that from 1994 uh, till 2010 I, I wrote and drew my own comics self-published comics um, probably about a hundred mini comics or zines or whatever you know whatever it was a lot of different things um, some of it incredibly embarrassing some of it that's you know um, that I, I still look back on fondly um, but yeah in 2010 I, I realized I hate um, hate drawing I really just hate drawing uh, but I really like writing a lot uh, and I think I'd fallen in love with the idea of being a comic book artist, but you know, it's a lot of hard work and I was not enjoying that, that work and uh, I wasn't getting anywhere with it, you know? Um, so I, I sort of quit drawing completely that, uh, um, it was like April 13th, 
2010. I stopped drawing and uh, I just started writing. I wanted to write crime stories and I knew crime stories didn't really sell, but I wanted to do it anyway. And so I just spent about a year, <clears throat> two years, I guess, writing this short crime stories called Murder Book. Um, if anyone wants to read this, there's still a few up online at murderbookcomic.com. Uh, when I can find the time, I'm going to sort of re-upload a bunch of the older ones. Um, but, um, yeah, I did that for a couple of years. And like I said, they were just short black and white crime stories, usually about five to 20 pages, give or take. Um, and they were all complete stories, so it was not continuation between one or the other. I just wanted to sort of flex uh, my writing skills and tell, uh, tell these sort of noir stories with these sort of Twilight Zone-type twists in them. And uh, that's kind of how I started to get attention, I think, from publishers is through doing Murder Book. Um, so I did, you know, I, I did them up until, I think, 2014, Dark Horse ran, you know, 2012, uh, Jay Ferber uh, had a, a, an image book called Near Near Death, and he invited me and uh, Jason Copeland, who'd drawn a couple murder book stories, to submit some for backup stories. So we did a bunch, five-page backup stories in image. So that was my first uh, published image work was early 2012, um, was these backup stories in Near Death. And then, you know, Dark Horse came along in 2014, and they commissioned four murder book stories for Dark Horse Presents, and then they published a, a, a I think it's like 180-page collection of, of uh, murder book stories. Yeah. And that came out in 2015, and I have not written a murder book story since 2015. I've had a few abortive attempts, uh, but never really uh, anything that's that's uh, finished. But uh, again, you know, we've got a lot of time on our hands these days, so I, uh, I finally sort of delved back in and... Um, sort of restructured. Uh, I, I feel like going back to doing murder book the same way I'd been doing it before. Just there was something about it that didn't feel right. Like I'm not going to be able to, to, I'm not the same writer I was five years ago. Um, and uh, I think, you know, at that point I had, I was trying to improve in these short bursts that I could write, but I think, you know, I hopefully have earned uh, enough sort of um, leeway with readers that I can, maybe tell uh, short stories in a slightly longer format. So right now what I'm working on is uh, uh, the first murder book story that I'm working on right now is it's a story that for now is called cash only. It's called murder book cash only, um, which is, is uh, a reoccurring uh, theme uh, or phrase in, in the story. But uh, it's a, it's a 48 page story that actually interestingly enough, Going back to our, our conversation just a couple minutes ago, the story actually is told in eight parts and uh, bounces around in time. Actually, like uh, <clears throat> we start sort of in present uh, up until one thing happens, and then we pop back about ten days to sort of fill in one side of the story, and then we you know pop back a, a few more days to t fill in another side of the story. Then we come back to the incident, and then. You know, as the story moves forward, the time bounces around a little bit as well. But uh, I've been uh, taking a lot of care with it, and a lot of time to um, to play around with time in it, and to really, uh, I don't know, it's just, just the atmosphere. Like I've been really spending so much, so much time on just the atmosphere and these and these tiny little moments that maybe don't seem like 
things, you know, that are immediately going to jump out at readers, but are things that cumulatively will uh, sort of have a, a, an effect on the larger story. And again, I feel like I'm I'm going off on a tangent, but it's something I'm excited about. I haven't, like, you know, like I said, I've tried to get back to Murderbook a couple of times and it's just never bore out. But this is like the time where I'm like, you know, this is it. This is how I think it's going to work. This is, it seems to be working. I'm very excited about it. And the hope is that uh, uh, after I finish this one, I just, you know, open up a new file and start another. And I'm going to see if there's not a way that I can get these out biannually. Um, how those are coming out, I don't know. I'm at present looking at possibly just Kickstartering, um, you know, to, to a year, 48-page thing. Uh, but you talk to me tomorrow, and that could definitely change. I, I wanted to mention something, because you mentioned with Murder Book the idea of these small elements that you introduce, having these where you're like, oh, okay, there's that character, and then you realize, like, long down the road, how much they really do tie with the overall story. And um, I think, for me, a good comparison, did you ever watch the show uh, Babylon 5? Never have, no. Well, Babylon 5 was, um, you know, it's by J. Michael Zizinski. And uh, mm. he kind of took that comic writer approach to TV, which is insane, because apparently he got so aggravated with working with a writer team and not having full story control that with season two onwards, he just wrote every single episode of the show. And the only ones he didn't write were like three episodes, and he got like Harlan Ellison, Peter David, and Neil Gaiman. He would introduce a character, and you'd be like, oh, okay, there's that character. And you'll be part in your brain, you're almost like, what's the point of this character? And then you get to a certain episode, like years, like maybe like even two or three seasons down the road, where he takes that storyline, takes that character, finds a way to weave it right into the main story, and you're like, holy crap, this character I thought was just pointless, just changed the entire storyline. Right. Yeah. Yeah, there's definitely, I mean, that's something I've been really like bouncing around with the whole with, with murder book, is that these, these sort of small statements or small moments... Um, will have these sort of uh, global effects on the story, not on the world, but on the story. And, uh, you know, they're, they're just little bits. And it's, uh, yeah, it's lots, of, it's lots of fun to play with. We have 48 pages, so it's not like I've got, you know, several seasons to do it. But uh, I think it's, um, I don't, I, I'm really happy with the way it's going. Like, I, I am, it's weird because I'm not one who's, I'm one who's rarely satisfied with stuff I've written. So to actually be writing this and, and reading it and just, be happy with it is is such a such a rare rare butterfly for me. So it's just one of these things I want to uh, uh, you know, enjoy while it's happening. We've talked about you working in established superhero characters, established characters. We've talked about your in murder mysteries, detective stories, and I wanted to kind of tie that in together in that kind of symmetrical way that was clearly totally planned. I promise. And sure. that's with your work on <laughs> Sons of on Sons of Anarchy because it is sure. really that blend of crime story. And established characters, established universes. How did that happen? Because I, I love the show. The show's, you know, the show's a classic. The spinoff, I'm, I could, the new series I could take or leave. But, um, it, the comic books really did feel like they just flew from, flowed from that same exact universe. What was it like as a writer working in that and blending those established characters, established characters and the crime stories that you obviously love? Uh, so it was an interesting thing. Okay. Um, uh, I, Started working for Boom. I, um, I'm trying to remember what I first did for him. I did some RoboCop stuff for him. And, um, 
I was doing a bit for them, and I had um, come back. I was already maybe done at, 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 at Image. I had a series called Sheltered I was working on. And I was working on this pitch around the same time that I was probably working on the Sheltered pitch, uh, which was called The One Percenters. Um, it was about a biker gang. And, um, you know, I'd, I'd, uh, I knew a bunch about biker gangs growing up. My dad uh, is a retired police officer, and, and he dealt with uh, them quite a bit in Ontario. Uh, I just had read up a bunch. I, I, this is a fascinating culture to me. Uh, sort of weirdly came out of like, uh, watching a lot of the old like 60s, uh, like Roger Corman, uh, Herschel Gordon Lewis, um, biker movies. Yeah. I wanted to do something that kind of felt like that, but felt real. Um, and, uh, so yeah, I had this whole pitch for this thing called the one percenters. I had done a ton of research, uh, on everything to, to write this thing. And, um, then one day I, I sat down and turned on Sons of Anarchy and then just turned around and threw my pitch away because <laughs> Sons of Anarchy was basically my pitch. Um, and like I hadn't seen Sons of Anarchy before that. Uh, so, um, when, when I got approached about a year or two later by Boom to write Sons of Anarchy, I was like, okay, cool. Like I'd already seen the show. Uh, obviously I'd already done this research. I'm ready. Let's do it. And, um, so yeah, I just, it was a, it was a really easy one to jump into. I, I like, I wish I had like a, a, a bigger story to tell about it, but uh, they offered it to me. I, um, I, uh, I accepted. I started writing. I think that the, one of the most interesting things that happened is, um, I took over for, so I, there's Christopher Golden who'd written the first uh, six issues of yeah. Sons of Anarchy at Boom. And then I came on after, uh, and his run is great. Um, and this is should in no way uh, uh, sound like a slight towards his run, or it, because it, it is absolutely not. Um, but when I took over, I started writing, and I had read his, and I'd been watching the show. When I started writing, my scripts were heavy with swearing, and and the script would usually get sent off like, through my editor to um, uh, the the licensor. So it was actually one of Kurt Sutter's. Uh, um, writers who would look over the, uh, the stuff I was doing on, on the boom book and Kurt Sutter uh, would, I believe read them and offer notes as well. But the first note they had was, can you swear in comic books? Uh, which I hadn't realized, like it was just like I, I had read Christopher's and hadn't really realized that he hadn't swore uh, in it, which is to his benefit that, you know, like it's, Clearly, the the absence of the uh, of swearing wasn't noticed, but like I got you know I got potty mouth and I, I swear like crazy. Um, and in the show they do, and I was uh, trying to keep it as authentic as as possible to the show. So I <clears throat> I had you know fucking every like third balloon, and um, and it was it was an interesting because it actually had to be a discussion. There was like a whole discussion you know internally a boom. And then with the licensor and stuff before they were like, yeah, just do it, you know, like, and, uh, but beyond that, like, you know, like I like the show. Um, I would occasionally just, you know, get sort of mandates like, Hey, let's maybe for this next one, do something that takes place between these two seasons or whatever. Uh, they were really giving with a lot of the stuff I was writing, uh, both boom and, um, uh, the, the people, uh, over at Sons of Anarchy, uh, Kurt Sutter's office. They were really great to work with. Um, 
and they they listen, which is an interesting thing that not all licensors do. I think all licensor, a lot of licensors tend to have this this idea that's ironclad um, that this is uh, what they say is how their characters are going to uh, act. Uh, this is what they're going to do. So if they, you know, you get sometimes notes from licensors saying so and so wouldn't do this, um, and that's, that's and so, usually you're boxed so in. I get you it. But it's so weird. It. it sucks. But yeah, with the Sons of Anarchy people, you know, periodically, like I um, remember getting a note saying, you know, I, I can't remember what I had, but it was something along the lines of, it was something with Gemma, and they were like, she wouldn't do this in this situation. And I wrote back and I was like, you know, I, I see where you come from, but I respectfully disagree. And here's why. And I gave them, you know, reasons why. And they emailed back and they're like, you know what? You're right. <laughs> In this situation, she would do that. So it was cool. So it's that sort of like, um, uh, relationship that you don't normally get with licensors that I think when you do get it just makes the product better. Um, that they're not sort of, sort of walling you out that they're they're willing to listen and they're willing to be sort of uh participants in, in the discussion about the book and and their interest is making sure that the book is as good as possible uh because they understand it is in many ways a reflection on the show uh, um, and so yeah it was it was just such a glorious experience to be honest it was a, a lot of fun um i got away with a lot of stuff that i i wasn't sure that i was going to uh, I remember, you know, even my first issue, like there was stuff I, I was researching, like what happens if you inject bleach into somebody's eyeball. And I'm like, the cops are going to knock down my door any second. But, uh, no, it was great. Like I said, I, I was really into the show at the time. Uh, and, uh, I, I really enjoyed writing the comic. That was actually my first work for hire ongoing was Sons of Anarchy. And I did it for, I think, just a little over a year. Uh, and it was a cool book that I left, you know, I, I got to a point where I'm like, I think I've just told all the stories I want to do, uh, and, and stepped away from the book and Ryan Ferry came in after that and did a great job. Um, but yeah, it was, the whole thing was a pleasant experience and I've got, uh, I still, I have nothing for, but love for that series. The thing, the thing I've noted with, um, Boom Studios and IDW is another one. It does seem like there's, when it comes to, the license, the license books that they publish, they just tend to be that much better. And I'm, part of me is like, is it because of the fact that the, that the people who own these licenses, are they, do they just trust in them to make those kind of books? And then you, and that's why you see books like Sons of Anarchy. That's why you see Power Rangers, which is like somebody I never thought I'd want to read. And I sit down and read it. And I'm like, holy shit. Why is Power Rangers amazing? And I'm like, uh-huh. and I think that's like the entire like comic world at large right now because i don't think anyone thought that book was going to be amazing but um like it, it feels like to me that like especially with um with boom and idw to an extent even with unfortunately all the financial problems are happening with them right now which is really sad that there is that there there almost seems to be that established trust with the licensors and the books and the studios in that regard that i've noticed yeah i think you know like the power rangers is another example of like i think a <clears throat> thing that did really well I think, honestly, as much as I wish, um, and I'm not going to cast sort of uh, um, shade at anyone, but like, uh, I think it all depends on the licensors themselves. Uh, and, and some are better than others. And, and 
some are just <laughs> like I've dealt with some that are nightmares uh, to deal with and, and don't really uh, I don't I don't know. <laughs> I think they give notes just for the for the sake of giving notes. It, and it, I think it's just licensor by licensor. It's just, uh, you know, it's like having a, you have good editors and bad editors and they can all be at the same company. Um, but, uh, you know, it all depends on, on the team that you put together. Exactly. Um, so with, with that, as we bring the, uh, as we read this episode of circuit 42 to a close, um, where can people, where can people find you on this wonderful, wonderful place called the interwebs and the social medias? All right. So, you can find me at edbrisson.com. Real simple. Um, <clears throat> I am on Twitter at edbrisson. So E-D-B-R-I-S-S-O-N. Um, I do not post to Twitter a whole lot. Um, so if I am, uh, if you come on Twitter and, and sort of, uh, at me or what, uh, what have you, um, I might not, if I don't respond, um, then, um, that don't please don't take it personally. Uh, I just don't post there often, and and uh, and I don't check there very often as well. Um, I used to be on there all the time, but I got kind of burnt out. Um, so yeah, follow me on there. I try and keep it. I try and post news and stuff when I've got things coming out. Um, I try and keep my Facebook pretty chill. You can find me on Instagram if you want at Ed underscore Brisson. But uh, also fair warning. All you're really going to see there is all the delicious food that I cook and lots of photos of my cats and dogs. Um, but, uh, those are, those are most of the places. Uh, but edbrisson.com is the website. Uh, I do have a newsletter you can subscribe to. I haven't sent it out during this whole COVID period, but, uh, we'll probably be sending out, uh, one in the next month or so. That's, uh, that might be the best place. I'm going to be honest with you, Ed. 90% of my time on Instagram is wasted looking at people's pet, looking at people's pets because I think they're all adorable. Sure. So that's just probably going to happen. I, that's fine. My, my, uh, my animals, uh, they, they're, they're, they're handsome animals. They're assholes. Uh, but they're, they're good looking animals. Um, but they're, yeah, they've got attitudes. Um, but yeah, you know, I post a lot of my cooking on there as well. So, you know, if, uh, if you want some recipes. Definitely, man. This is, this is a lot of fun. I wanted to, th- I wanted to thank you for coming on the show. Um, oh, thanks for having thank- me. Definitely. And I want to thank everybody. Out there for hopefully listening. Come on, come on, people. We got, we got to make this happen. Uh, otherwise, the podcast <laughs> won't be awesome. Um, right. but with that, I wanted to say thank you once again for coming on. And that brings us to the end of our newest episode of, um, Circuit 42 with myself, your host, Ian, and of course, our special guest and comic book writer and apparently cooking Instagram extraordinaire, Ed Brisson. Thanks a lot. <laughs>